0: The HEAL podcast has been created to explore my favorite ingredients for a long-term, sustainable, healthy human experience. We take an informed look into topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanding consciousness. HEAL stands for Healthy Eating and Living. So why not sit back, relax, be present, and enjoy the conversations about this unique gift we were all given called LIFE. If you feel this podcast has resonated with you, please feel free to share it with your friends, family and colleagues, as the gift of knowledge is something wondrous. Thank you for your open hearts and minds. Alrighty, let's get into some delicious healing. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Kiran Krishnan is a research microbiologist and has been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 16 years. He comes from a strict research background, having spent several years with hands-on R&D in the fields of molecular medicine and microbiology at the University of Iowa. Mr. Krishnan earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Microbiology at the University of Iowa. His undergraduate education was followed up with postgraduate research in Molecular Biology and Virology. He left University Research to take a position at the U.S. Business Development and Product Development lead for Amano Enzyme USA. Amano is one of the world's largest suppliers of therapeutic enzymes used in the dietary supplement and pharmaceutical industries in North America. Kieran also established a clinical research organization where he designed and conducted over a dozen human clinical trials in human nutrition. Kieran is also co-founder and partner in New Science Trading, LLC, a nutritional technology development, research and marketing company in the U.S., dietary, supplement and medical food markets. Most recently, Kieran is acting as the chief scientific officer at Physicians Exclusive, LLC and Microbiome Labs. He is a frequent lecturer on the human microbiome at medical and nutritional conferences. He conducts the popular monthly microbiome series webinars through the Rebel Health Tribe Group Practitioner Training Program, and he has been invited as an expert guest on national radio and satellite radio, and has been a guest speaker in several health summits as a microbiome expert. He is currently involved in three novel human clinical trials on probiotics and the human microbiome. Kiran offers his extensive knowledge and practical application of the latest science on the human microbiome as it relates to health and wellness. To find out more about Kiran, please visit Kiran Krishnan on Instagram and Facebook, K-I-R-A-N K-R-I-S-H-N-A-N. Kieran, thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: How are you, brother? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, such a pleasure to be able to do this with you.
0: I've been looking forward to this podcast for so long because I think I have a pretty good understanding of how our bodies work, but listening to you on other podcasts and your information, it really makes me feel like a toddler, (laughs) (laughs) which is fantastic because I want to learn. I'm selfish with these podcasts. I mean, they are for an audience, but really, first and foremost, this is for me to get a a better understanding on the topics that I'd love to explore. And you are an expert on the microbiome, and I would love just to start off with your
1: definition of what the microbiome is sure yeah so this is a this is such an important relevant topic we cannot overstate the importance of the microbiome itself you know we can't overstate the control that the microbiome has on virtually everything about us and so what is this mysterious dark matter of microbiome that we can't see touch or feel really um, that controls everything well it's actually a very complex ecological system when we use the word microbiome we are referencing all of the microbial components so things like viruses bacteria protozoa fungus amoebas all kinds of microscopic organisms and then, even more importantly, all of their genetic elements as well that are relevant to our health and our function. You know, so there's two parts to it. There's the organisms themselves and what they do, um, what they metabolize, the things that they produce, all of the and the community structures within these organisms, and all those community structures that affect us. And then also all of their genetic elements because. One of the things that people don 't really realize is as a human species, we are really quite primitive in our um, in our capability of functioning as a mammal. you know if you look at the human genome itself uh, and we used to think you know everything about us was dictated by our DNA that was a gene for conducting every Chemical reaction in the body. There was a gene associated with every disease or dysfunction uh, that that we see occurring in our body. But as it turns out, uh, we've only got about twenty-two thousand functional genes in our chromosome. Now that sounds like like a lot, but let me put it in in, in perspective. An earthworm, a very unsophisticated earthworm living in the ground, has about thirty-eight thousand functional genes. Wow! Right, we have twenty. 2,000. Is that crazy? We are uh, a rice plant has about 40,000 functional genes. We are half as cool as a rice plant is. You know, <laughs> we're at the top of the evolutionary ladder, right? We're the top of the food chain. How did that happen? How is it that we are so sophisticated and yet so simplistic in our code? Right, it'd be like having a uh, a computer that has a very limited line of coding—the amount of coding that a basic calculator would have—and yet it's the most powerful computing device in the world. How is that even possible? Well, as it turns out, we have over three and a half million microbial genes, most of it bacteria, in our system right? So we have 22,000 human genes. We have over three and a half million microbial or bacterial genes in our system. So what we does have, it mean? Yeah, you know, so at the end of the day, what it means is we are wholly dependent on these microbes for function, for uh, basic human function. Everything we do on a daily basis that makes us human, the way we feel, the way we think, the way we digest food, the way our immune system works, the way our skin responds to the world around us, whether we're fat, we're thin, we have anxiety or we don't, whether we have a great outlook on life or, or we tend to be more somber and depressed, all of those things, how we sleep, you know, what we feel like when we wake up, all of those things are coded for by those 3.3 million genes that are microbial based in our system. Wow when did you learn about this and what attracted
0: you to this line of study? Because I've got a whole raft of questions that I want to explore with you, but let's talk about your, I guess, fascination with this.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I've always been a very curious, nerdy kid. You know, I've I've always been the type that never took anything for granted. I always wanted to learn and figure out how things work. It, It would bother me when I didn't understand how things around me worked, whether it was the cars that were driving down the street or the microwave oven or whatever it may be, I wanted to understand how things work. So I had an innate curiosity for mechanisms and for understanding uh, the world around me. Now, my mom is a medical doctor. So uh, I grew up actually in Malaysia and in India before moving to the States when I was around 14 years old. Now, when I was in India and Malaysia, I would always kind of follow my mom around. I'd I'd go to her clinic and watch her do cool things like sew people up and fix broken arms and things like that. And it always fascinated me that she had this amazing knowledge of the human body and could repair people. Uh, the way the mechanic next door would repair scooters. And so I knew I wanted to get into the health and medical space. And when I was in college, my freshman year, before I decided on what I wanted to major in, what I wanted to study, I saw this movie outbreak, you know, it's, um, it's a few years old. It dates me a little bit, but this was, uh, I love it. It's a great film isn't it? With Morgan Freeman and Dustin Hoffman. And there was this viral outbreak in a small town in the USA. And, and there were all these researchers from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, um, chasing down this virus and trying to find a cure. And I got really excited about that. And I was like, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to figure out a cure for Ebola, for HIV. I want to like work in the microbial world. And so I started in the, in the School of Microbiology. And that's where I ended up Continuing my education. Now, one of the things you start to realize when you study microbiology is that microbes are so amazingly powerful. You know, everything about us is affected by microbes. I mean, think about the plagues that we have gone through as a human race, right? You could have a microbe, a bacteria, or a single virus, these really Uh, you know, seemingly unsophisticated uh, organisms can wipe out millions of people in a short period of time, if they wish. So understanding that power of microbes was really fascinating to me. And in the beginning part of my career, we were focused a lot on uh, the bad microbes, the ones that are actually causing harm to people. But then when the Human Microbiome Project started, and we started to understand how the human body was actually composed predominantly of microbes you start to learn that the vast majority of microbes discovered you know between 1 and 0.1% are actually harmful the other 99 to 99.9% are actually benign or beneficial wow so the vast majority of microbes are actually benign or beneficial and the only time that 0.1 to 1% can actually cause illness or infection is if the 99 to 99.9% are dis- are are harmed, and most of the time we are harming that other ninety nine percent, right? So if you look at places like hospitals, the most sterile environment we have in our modern world, that's where you pick up some of the nastiest infections, mm. right? And, and that's because it's 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 devoid of that other ninety nine percent. It allows that one to point one percent of of dysfunctional uh, harmful bacteria and viruses to really proliferate. So then it really kind of put things in perspective to me. I was like, wow, okay, my career, if I were to help people, and I always had this grandiose idea of helping loads and loads of people from making discoveries and all that, if I were to help people, then the biggest way I could help people would be to really understand and harness the power of the other 99% that is actually here to protect and help us. And if we can do that, we can really change lives.
0: Wow, I mean, you just taught me so much about it, I had no idea. Now, I, I want to ask some basic questions here about the microbiome. Yeah, as a population, as a species, we have people living all across the planet from the Inuits to uh, the African population to Pacific Islanders to you name it, we've basically spread ourselves across this globe and from my understanding certain i guess populations have very different microbiomes yeah so what is the perfect human microbiome is there such a thing or how do you define that and and what has your research
1: led you to understand about this wonderful diversity that we have yeah. So that's a really important question. In fact, that's the billion dollar question in the whole microbiome world. Now, the good thing is we have some insights on that already. You know, So let's just look at the composition of the microbiome, right? So let's take either one of us as, a, as an example. We can have up to a thousand different species of bacteria uh, living in and on our system. So that's in our digestive tract, on our skin, in our eyeballs, in our mouth, in our urogenital tract, basically everywhere. There's nothing in your body that's actually sterile. You know, those used to be misnomers. We used to think urine was sterile. We used to think our blood was sterile. Even in our blood, for every milliliter of blood, we've got about a thousand bacterial cells in every milliliter of blood, you know, and we've got, what, five liters of blood on average in our system. So we've got a lot of bacteria everywhere, including in our circulatory system. So when you when you look at the composition of bacteria that can exist in any one human, you've got about a thousand different species. Um, and the more you have in the gut, especially, the better off you are. Mm-hmm. Now, Keep that in mind, right, so we, so each individual can have up to about a thousand uh, different species living in and on you now that is out of a possible around thirty five thousand species that have been identified that are part of the human microbiome, right so each one of us has a different collection of uh, of about you know a thousand species from a pool of about thirty five thousand species that have been discovered to be human commensal organisms. Commensal meaning they live within us in a, in a symbiotic fashion, right? So, so the complexity of the microbiome, the ecological complexity is really great when you go down to the species level of the bacteria. Now, it's absolutely true that the region in which you live will dictate which types of species predominate. The, um, the Hadza tribe in, the ta- in Tanzania that eat a very unique diet, get a lot of exposure to the outside environment, they've got a very different microbiome than the Inuit Indians that uh, basically persist on 90% of their diet being seal fat, uh, you know, of course, for a large part of the year. So what you're eating, where you're from, your lineage, all of those things dictate the type of microbiome you have and that type of microbiome even among individuals in the same uh, geographic region will vary at the species level. So we have to remember there's something called taxonomy when it comes to bacteria and any living organism right we we start with a kingdom the kingdom is the biggest grouping of the microbes and then you go down to the uh, the order and the family and the genus and the species so each time you get more and more specific when you get down to the species level you've got one very specific type of bacteria so at the phylum level which is one of the bigger groups, you've got a consistent about six different phylums of bacteria that live in each individual. Um, so each of us, you could take all of the microbes in our, in our body, and they would, they would classify into one of six groups. Now, when you look at all the people around the world in different geographic regions, they have different proportions of each of those groups. Uh, when you when you compare people in, in Africa to Europe to North America to, um, you know, Australasia and so on. But then when you get down to the species level, even identical twins at the species level can have microbiomes as different as 50%. You know, so these are identical twins have 100% the same genetics. They come from the same mother. Um, they, they're basically raised in the same environment and yet their microbiome can be as, as much as 50% different at the species level, right? <laughs> so that's what makes each of us so, so unique is at the species level, we all have a very different microbiome. That must make it fun for you. (laughs) Exactly. You know, so that makes it so much more complicated, right? But there is something we can look at called beta diversity. Beta diversity is you can take like most healthy people in North America, and you can look at their microbiome at the phylum level, you know so that's at the, the, one of the highest categorization levels. you know like if, if, if people aren't familiar with what this whole phylum species level is, it'd be like say cars or motor vehicles. Right. So any kind of motor vehicle will fall under a phylum, whether it's a motorcycle, a moped, a car, a truck, uh, uh, um, anything that has a motor that moves. Mm-hmm. So that's the phylum level. Right. So we could say, oh, there's a whole bunch of motor vehicles in this city. Mm-hmm. Now, when we get down to the next phase, let's say family, then we can break up the motor vehicles into cars versus bikes versus you know trucks and so on then when we get down to the genus level we can even refine each one instead of cars we can go two door car- cars versus four door cars and then at the species level we would get down to the very specific brand of the car or very specific brand of the bike so that's that's the uh, that's the uh, hopefully a way for people to understand what i'm talking about when we talk about this characterization so when it comes down to this brand level Everybody has a different mix of bacterial brands. When you look at the phylum level, like the motor vehicle level, we can look at patterns among healthy people versus non-healthy people. For example, to keep with that same analogy, healthy people might have 10% cars, you know, 70% trucks, 5% bikes, and so on to make up 100%, uh, versus non-healthy people in North America might have cars only, you know, uh, and about 3% bikes and then 30% uh, trucks. So you can look and see how different people are when they're healthy and when you group them together versus those that are unhealthy. So we can look at patterns. Uh, Just a question then, how do you identify what health is for these people? What are the benchmarks for you that you're looking at? Yeah. So the, the biggest thing is looking at people that don't have a chronic illness. So now, healthy is 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 a relative term, right? We would there, are, like in the U.S., the CDC has outlined what are all things that are considered to be a chronic illness or a disease state. So, if you are obese, we wouldn't consider that to be a healthy, normal individual. Uh, if you're somebody with diabetes or Crohn's or colitis, so some form of a chronic illness would be categorized as non-healthy individuals, somebody that has no defined chronic illness, no diagnosed chronic illness, and isn't being managed for any chronic illness, including things like severe uh, chronic rhinosinusitis, like allergies and asthma. Um, All of those things would be categorized as chronic illness. So when you look at those differentiations, you can see patterns among healthier people uh, versus non-healthy people, people who have some form of disease state. Mm. One of our dear friends in Australia
0: is a doctor called Dr. Libby, and she did her PhD on children on the autism spectrum. And (laughs) at that point in time, many years ago, she was studying the gut microbiome of these children. And I want to get into some of this a little bit later on, but what she discovered through her work and and the team was that Children on the autism spectrum had less, I guess, beneficial bacteria, if that is the correct term, or were deficient in certain bacteria that was present in children without being on the autism spectrum. And one of the things that she discovered was that children that took probiotics in the form of a capsule, nothing really changed, but the children on the autism spectrum that included fermented foods, such as sauerkraut or kimchi, actually started to get different healthy bacteria back into the digestive system. So I've got these questions further down the track, but I guess what I wanted to say is are there certain human beings that have certain bacteria completely devoid from their system or not
1: active? Yeah, so when we look at, so we can categorize bacteria in different ways, right? So there are microbes in our microbiome that we refer to as keystone strains. And that's an important term because keystone strains um, indicate that it's a bacteria that is absolutely critical for the structure and function of the whole bacterial ecological system. And those bacteria also tend to be associated with health and wellness. So for example, Acromantia mucinophila is a keystone bacteria that exists in in pretty much everybody. Um, And Acromantia, when you have it at higher levels, is inversely correlated with everything in the metabolic syndrome spectrum. So cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, cancers, and so on. So the higher amounts of acromantia a person has, the more protective they are against those particular chronic illnesses. So what you tend to see in like autism spectrum disorder or obesity or certain types of cancers is the absence of some of these important uh, keystone strains. Now, when I say absence, it's important to clarify that when it comes to the microbiome, Absence may not mean that they're not there. Absence can also mean, and often does, that they are there, but at such low levels that they're not functioning. That's why we can actually do things to bring their growth levels back. So, the question you had about the probiotics versus the fermented foods is a great example of that because the vast majority of probiotics on the market, unfortunately, are really not doing much of anything. You know, they are. Hodgepodge is what I call kitchen sink formulas of just random strains, typically lactobacilli that are used, sometimes bifidobacteria as well, and and companies are kind of throwing them in many different concentrations. You know, we in the states we have them anywhere from 10, 50 billion, all the way up to nine hundred billion. You know, and it, just the numbers <laughs> just keep going up arbitrarily when when there's no study showing that. 200 billion is better than 50 billion or 300 billion is better than 10 billion. There's no rhyme or reason to the dosing. It's just kind of a marketing thing. And most of those bacteria, when you take them, are going to die through the stomach, going through the stomach, because your stomach is called a gastric barrier for a reason. The stomach acid, one of its important jobs is to kill microbes that are coming through in food, from the food and from environment and so on. Because most microbes, we don't want them to necessarily go in and start functioning in the gut. Most of those microbes need to be killed off so that your body has that as a primary defense. Now, the the gastric barrier will eliminate most of those probiotics, so what you'll get moving through is just kind of dead bacteria moving through. Now, some of those dead bacteria can have an immune stimulatory effect as they're moving through, but it's not really going to change the microbiome but here's the thing about fermented foods the fermented food is also not changing the microbiome because of the microbes that are in fermented foods it's because of the food itself the substrate that is created when you're fermenting the food right fermented foods are super important because they are highly nutritious pre-digested foods that because of the fermentation process now are enriched with nutrients that actually help the rest of the microbiome. They're enriched with things like organic acid, uh, peptides, B vitamins, urolithins, all of these important nutrients that act as food for a lot of the good bacteria in the gut. So that's why you can affect change in the microbiome with the fermented food or with diet, but you really can't with the vast majority of probiotics. Now, we, of course, our whole focus is working on probiotics that can affect change in the microbiome. or well, we could talk about that as well.
0: Mm, I love it because there seems to be, I mean, you're in the States and kombucha has been very prominent over there in the health food stores for the last couple of decades. And so I've been traveling there, whereas in Australia, it's just sort of become mainstream in the last, pretty much the last 12 to 24 months. And interestingly yeah. enough, I was making kombucha nearly three decades ago on my kitchen bench because I heard it was really beneficial for us. It's interesting, these days I've heard that studies carried out on the commercial brands, basically they're dead probiotics and it's pretty much the same as drinking, maybe not soft drink, but it's not really doing anything in that commercial sense with commercially made kombucha, whereas if you make it at home by yourself or make some kefir at home, homemade or kvass or any of these fermented drinks, it is probably a lot better than
1: commercially made uh, beverages. Absolutely. And that's the same with fermenting foods at home too. You know, whatever you ferment at home is it, with, with better care, picking the right substrates to begin with. You know, if you, you don't want to ferment low quality vegetables. You don't want to ferment low quality foods. You don't want to ferment stuff that is loaded with, you know, Roundup on it. So you want to be cognizant of picking really clean, farmer's market sourced, um, organic, produce that you would then ferment yourself. And that'll have more benefit because the moment you start doing this stuff commercially, they start cutting corners you know, to reduce costs, to reduce production time, to reduce labor, all of that stuff. The moment you cut corners, you're not letting the fermentation actually go all the way through. You're adding in sugars and all that to speed things up. You know, they do all kinds of things commercially to cut corners, which saves them money and increases profits, but it doesn't really help the product.
0: Mm, What I'd love to explore with you now is let's take a base level here of all the things that we should take into consideration what we're putting into our bodies and onto our bodies. And I would love to start with water. I'm a, I'm a big campaigner in Australia for non-fluoridated water and okay. to get rid of the chlorine that they add into our water and, and get a good system or, or get the best possible clean water. And often I'm laughed at by the media and, and by People that say, no, it needs to be in there. We need the chlorine. We need the, the fluoride that's extra added for our teeth and all of this. So, from a person that studied the microbiome, does the quality of the water have a direct uh,
1: correlation to our gut microbiome in a positive or negative way? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you think about fluoride, number one, there's no actual real good data showing that fluoride in the water improves teeth. Uh, strength and health, uh, and health and reduces cavity formation and all that, right? That, that, that data just doesn't exist and yet they've been doing it for decades. But what fluoride is, is fluoride can be a strong antimicrobial, which means that it's killing bacteria as it enters into your system. The same thing with chlorine. Chlorine is a strong antimicrobial and also kills bacteria as it enters your system. It can also act as a, as a pH buffer. So it starts changing the pH Within your digestive tract as well, all of those things hurt your ecosystem uh, within within your gut. And so, and then you know, if your if your uh, water on top of that is contaminated with things like herbicides and pesticides, which we see a lot in the states, certainly, then you've got uh, a triple and quadruple whammy of antimicrobials going into your system as your base water. So it makes a huge difference. I tell people a lot to get some sort of carbon filter in their system, maybe reverse osmosis if they can afford it, but something to pull those activated compounds out because they will impact your your microbial ecological system. Let me give you a reference for this. When we do studies in microbiology in the lab, right? We're doing studies on microbial community structures and trying to figure out what influences their growth or inhibits them and all that. We do not use tap water, right? Because we know if we use tap water in the lab, it's going to screw up your results because that has an impact on the microbes. In the lab, we use reverse osmosis water only for all of the experimental procedures because that stuff in tap water screws up microbial growth. And so if it's not good enough for studying bacteria in the lab, how can it be good enough for us drinking liters and liters of it every day of our lives? Mm.
0: Okay. You mentioned it before, herbicides (laughs) fertilizers, glyphosate. Mm -hmm. Again, in this country, in Australia, glyphosate doesn't seem to be an issue in the mass media and from our agricultural departments. And they're spraying it on the side of the roads, they're spraying it in the parks, they're spraying it in children's schools, they're spraying it on our food, and they're saying that it doesn't have or cause an issue for us being humans and for our pets or whatever, or for our children. Now, what I've heard is it's a low-level antibiotic. Let's start with fertilizers, glyphosate, and then step into antibiotics. And what does that (laughs) do
1: to our microbiome, please? yeah so so glyphosate and and the roundup and especially the the commercial product roundup that is exceptionally bad for our system now in the u s we've we've won a couple of uh big uh lawsuits you know where where individuals people who work for um school grounds keepers and people like that that have been spraying the stuff uh, because that's part of their job they've actually won. Trials where where the the jury was shown convincingly that their exposure to the to the glyphosate and Roundup was a big driver of their cancers. So these people have really bad uh, you know uh, terminal cancers, and and it was caused by the exposure on a regular basis at their work to the Roundup, right? So um, so we now have a good amount of evidence here, at least enough to convince juries in court that these things are driving cancers. Now, the World Health Organization declared glyphosate as a probable carcinogen like six years ago. Right and so, and who is the World Health Organization? right? They are only the biggest uh, research health body in the in the in the existing world, and it 's a collaboration between numerous countries so it 's not any one political system so let 's dig a little bit deeper of how glyphosate can actually affect you because. Uh, What's true is that in some sense, when you look at the compound glyphosate, does it affect a human cell? That's how they established the safety of glyphosate. They tested it on its ability to create toxicity in the human cell. Well, when you test it on the human cell, it doesn't really create much toxicity. The reason is glyphosate is an inhibitor of a biochemical pathway called a shikimate pathway. The shikimate pathway is responsible for producing aromatic amino acids. And aromatic amino acids are really essential to all life forms. The thing is, we don't use as a human species, our dogs don't use the shikimate pathway to create aromatic amino acids. We do it through other pathways. And so here's this compound that interferes with the shikimate pathway. And then the, ra- the rationale was humans don't use the shikimate pathway. Dogs don't use, mammals don't use the shikimate pathway. So it's not toxic to us. Whereas weeds and certain insects and all do use the shikimate pathway, and so it is harmful to them and it kills them off. That was the whole rationalization around why this is not toxic to humans. But as it turns out, the vast majority of bacteria that live in and on us do use the shikimate pathway. So in fact, it is a very strong and potent antibiotic and antimicrobial. But here's the the kicker to it. It's worse than most antibiotics because it selectively kills good bacteria. That's what the studies on when you expose animals and animal microbiomes to this compound, it selectively kills good bacteria and allows bad bacteria to proliferate. Bacteria like certain infectious clostridia, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, infectious E. coli, Staphylococcus, all of these types of microbes seem to have a certain resistance to it, whereas your good beneficial bacteria become very susceptible to it. So when you get regular daily doses of this, you're basically setting up your system where you're decimating your ecology in a way that is the worst possible outcome where you have low to dysfunctional good bacteria and you're systematically increasing the growth of pathogenic bad bacteria. You know, so this has been, this has been well identified in several different studies. And we did a study on this as well, which we should talk about on the pediatric microbiome. Incidentally, in 1970, Monsanto filed for a patent for glyphosate being a antimicrobial. So so it's by Monsanto's own admission it's a very strong antimicrobial in fact their initial idea for for this compound glyphosate was to use it as an antibiotic uh but what they found was that uh, you know in 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 the production and when when it was spilling around it was also killing off weeds and things like that so then they discovered okay it's actually killing off lower order plants uh and some insects so then they started going about the uh the herbicide pesticide route and and for decided to forego the antibiotic route, but it's in their own patents, and it's a strong antibiotic.
0: Okay, so going back to the start, when you were talking about what the microbiome is, and you're talking, saying, you know, our human genes are so a very small percentage compared to our bacteria. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that the glyphosate doesn't really affect our human genes; it affects the bacteria, which is more than what we are anyway, human
1: yeah is that correct exactly. yeah absolutely you know so we're only ten percent human from a functionality standpoint more than ninety percent of our day-to-day function which which makes us human is coded for by these important bacteria and when we are when we're uh, regularly and systematically exposing ourselves to antibacterial compounds like this including the chlorine and the fluoride and uh, the preservatives and all of that stuff in food we are literally shooting ourselves in both feet by decimating this really important microbial ecology that makes up our entire human uh, structure one of the one of the analogies i give and this is a really important message for people to understand is that as a homo sapiens sapien right that's our genus and species homo sapiens sapien we used to think of ourselves as this collection of Organs, you know, in a skeletal structure, uh, we've got a brain, a heart, a pancreas, a stomach, all of this stuff connected by neurons and vessels and, and smooth muscle cells and all that. So we had this mechanistic, engineering like um, view and understanding of the human species. Now we come to understand that the human is really something called a holobiome. And a holobiome is defined as a superorganism. What we are is a walking, talking rainforest, right? Every square millimeter of our system is covered by microbes and every other square millimeter has a slightly different ecology than the one by it. And all of these ecologies, these microecologies have to talk to each other, have to work in concert in order to perpetuate the health of the whole. And, And vast majority of chronic illnesses can be traced back to some disruption in this ecology of ours, right? So we have this human, which is a microbial construct. It's an elegant, gorgeous beautiful complex microbial construct we have taken it and we've put it in an antimicrobial world right so we have created one of the most anti human worlds and environments that we possibly can by surrounding ourselves with things that kill and decimate our inner uh, ecology
0: okay very controversial. And if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to. But just as a curious member of the public listening to this, um, I want to go into medications and also vaccines. Does that disrupt our microbiome and children getting vaccines from a young age?
1: Does that affect our microbiome as well? Yeah. So with medications, many of them can. So certainly antibiotics do, right? We know that hands down. We know there's there's numerous studies showing that a single course of clindamycin, a seven-day course, can affect your microbiome for up to two years uh, in a negative way. There's also a recent study published, uh, which is really fascinating, where they followed individuals that were uh, given a course of antibiotics. So what they did is they studied their microbiome before they started the course of antibiotics. And then they also studied their microbiome during the course of antibiotics. And then every month for about six, Months after they finished the course of antibiotic, and they found that compared to their baseline before they started, that their microbiome was changed significantly and shifted during the course of antibiotics, and even up to six months after stopping it. But here's the fascinating thing about that study: they also followed the microbiomes of individuals that lived in the households with the people taking the antibiotics, but these individuals did not actually have the antibiotic prescription. So partners, platonic roommates and all that that did not take the course antibiotics, they followed their microbiomes and they found that even they had the same disruption in their gut as the individual that took the antibiotic. No way. Right? Isn't that crazy? So we have a we have like a microbiome cloud that we all carry around with us that exists in our households, that exists in our communities, in our offices, and all that, where we are re- regularly sharing microbes with one another. And when one person's microbiome in that cloud system gets decimated by, of course, antibiotics or whatever it may be, it affects the other people's microbiomes as well in a very measurable way you know so so medications you know if 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 we're living in the same household and i'm trying to be really healthy and i'm eating healthy and all that um you know and and my roommate is or or my partner is not concerned about it and taking you know medication chronically eating processed foods that person is affecting my microbiome as well you know so not only do medications affect your microbiome, but it can affect the microbiome of someone that lives with you. So that's important to note, And that's with antibiotics, right? So then the other medications like prednisone, for example, so uh, you know steroids, um, all of these things have been shown to impact the microbiome to some degree. Not all medications have antihistamines, anti anti-leukotrienes that people take for allergies. I, I've not seen any data on those actually impacting the microbiome. From a, from a theoretical standpoint, sure they could, uh, but the data is not quite there yet. Other things like SSRI, selective uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, these are the medications people take chronically for anxiety and depression. Those have been shown to convey antibiotic resistance to microbes within the gut microbiome. So they seem to have an impact on the microbiome, you know, so medication certainly can. Just think about it this way, right? Our microbiome evolved as a very um, complex and almost delicate ecosystem, and it evolved uh, through our ancestral lineage, you know, depending on where our ancestors came from, what they ate, the type of environment that they're in. So anytime we're putting anything into our system that our human system has not developed uh, evolutionary adaptation to, it's going to have some disruption in our ecology. You know, and then with the vaccine thing, it is, it is a really controversial thing. I have not seen any studies that vaccines themselves hurt the microbiome. You know, they're, they're, it's, a complex, um, it's a complex topic because from a microbiology standpoint, I've studied vaccines and the whole idea of vaccination is sound science maybe how they do it may be problematic. You know, maybe we're we're doing too many vaccines at once. Maybe the things that they add into the vaccines, uh, mercury and other heavy metals, those are likely driving problems. But the data is not quite there to show that vaccines themselves harm the microbiome initially in the babies. Um, I'm, I'm guessing people are doing research in that space, but I haven't seen data on that side yet. Well, let's take a step back then into
0: childbirth. Yeah, from my understanding, this is a very, very, very obviously important time, and and what the mother and even the father, and to a point even the grandparents ate has mm-hmm. a flow-on effect, and even how the birth happens, whether it's cesarean in a hospital, home birthing, all of these factors, vaginal birth, obviously play possibly a very important role in the development of that human being yeah especially when it relates to the microbiome can you talk us through all the different ways that we can
1: strengthen the coming generation yeah so that that's one of the most important things we can talk about because of course the outcomes our kids face are very much dependent on what is happening during gestation, during the birthing process, and especially in the first two and a half to three years of their lives, because that's when the microbiome is really being situated, if you will, and at that point, you can set up your child for having a microbiome that will that will drive a huge increase in chronic illness or a microbiome that will provide them loads of resilience uh, and an overall better healthy outcome so let 's talk a little bit about things that influence that early on. We do know that gestational stress on the mom has a significant impact on the uh, the microbiome of the child because stress actually increases virulence factors of latent pathogens and all that. So what does that mean? Um, you know, we all have viruses and bacteria, many of them pathogenic that live in us but don't necessarily cause illness, right? So those are called latent uh, uh, microbes or latent viruses. Things like Epstein Barr or Cytomegalovirus. Virus, or human herpes virus, or papilloma virus, or Klebsiella in the in the side of bacteria, uh, pseudomonas in the side of bacteria. They are p- potential pathogens, but they remain dormant in a in a healthy ecosystem. The moment you become stressed. Uh, stress and the and the release of stress hormones actually increases the virulence of these pathogens, so they become more prominent and they start to kick out toxins and other things that actually make you unhealthy. The stress also increases the leakiness in the gut. Um, stress-driven intestinal permeability. Is thought to be one of the one of the biggest contributors to uh, to workplace more, uh, absenteeism and mortality and morbidity worldwide. Right, stress. It's crazy when you think about it. Uh, we've all known that you've got to be mindful, you've got to manage your stress. But now we have real definitive understanding of how stress in itself can lead to chronic illness, and a lot of it has to do with uh, creating permeability in the intestines. Uh, which which leads to chronic inflammation and also increasing the virulence of of um, opportunistic or pathogenic microbes and viruses. So what when mom during the gestation period, if she has a stressful pregnancy or a stressful household or whatever the um, the places that she's living uh, while she's while she's building this baby in her in her body, um, if she's undergoing a lot of stress, that has a huge impact on the baby's microbiome uh, during gestation and when the baby's born, too. In fact, there's some data showing, and this is an animal data, showing that uh, stress in, in, during gestation can actually dramatically increase the risk of giving birth to a child on the spectrum. You know, so that's 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 and when you have increased infection in mom during the gestational process, that can increase the um, the likelihood of giving birth to a child that, that is on the spectrum or display spectrum disorders. So that's one of the things, right? Maternal stress is is a really important thing. So moms that are out there thinking about having a baby or currently pregnant, you've got to really work on your mindfulness. And then the people who are around you, dads, partners, whoever it is. You've got to be very cognizant of how important it is to keep that uh, the, the mom that is building the baby in a very homeostatic, calm state because that has a huge impact. So that's one area. The second area is mom's diet. Now, I always say with pregnant women, you kind of follow what, what your body's craving, right? So there were times like with my wife where she was just craving meat. Uh, and she doesn't even eat meat uh, that much. But during certain phases of pregnancy, she's craving meat. And then all of a sudden she's craving cheese and uh, random things like, oh my God, I can't wait to eat some broccoli. You know, just like random weird cravings. All of those are neurotransmitters that are being sent to the brain from the gut, from the microbiome. So the microbiome is telling you in part what to eat and what you, what your body needs in order to affect diversity within the microbiome. So just kind of follow your instincts and if you're not getting any particular cravings then the important thing to do is to consume as much diversity as you can in your food source and also predominantly plant-based foods. You know plant-based foods tend to be the most supportive for diverse healthy microbiome. Uh, and we didn't mention that earlier you know and you asked me the question what is a healthy microbiome? Even though we all have a very different microbiome at the species level, it is important to note that one of the characteristics across the board, no matter if you live in Tanzania, if you live in Alaska, if you live in Australia or the U.S., one of the very important characteristics that indicates a healthy microbiome is a diverse microbiome in the gut. Higher diversity in the microbiome is associated with much lower risk of chronic illness, much uh, higher longevity, so it's tied directly to longevity. And then when it comes to babies, much better outcome for them in, in the long term.
0: Mm. I want to I want to explore that after we get through the birthing process. Yeah, because I'm fascinated about diet. So let's finish this
1: one off, and, and then we go take a really big deep dive into, into food across the planet. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so then, okay. So we talked about stress, then we talked about mom following your instincts with the cravings. Your body's telling you what you need, but if you don't have any specific signals from your body, then just try to be as diverse as you can with your diet. Now. You know, I, like I mentioned earlier, what is happening with the other people in the household can also impact your microbiome. So it, it really doesn't help if mom's trying to be healthy and eating right and and resting and managing her stress. If the people around her, her husband or her partner or the other kids in the house are eating junk and you know taking medication and doing all of that, that's going to impact mom's microbiome and then eventually the baby's microbiome as well. So another thing to keep in mind. Now, during the birthing process, of course, vaginal births make a huge difference on the baby's microbiome. Numerous studies show that kids who are born vaginally um, tend to have a significant lower incidence rate of allergies Asthmas, immune dysfunctions, um, autoimmune disease risk, type 1 diabetes risk, much reduced metabolic syndrome risk reduced significantly if you're born through the vaginal canal, because the vaginal canal has this huge initial inoculum of very important bacteria for the baby. Now, and as it turns out, one of, the, one of the important components of the inoculum is not just the bacteria that are in the vaginal canal, but mom typically defecates during the birthing process and exposure to mom's distal colonic bacteria is also important because one of the predominant species in your distal colon are bifidobacteria. And as it turns out, in the first six months of life, the predominant species in a healthy infant gut is bifidobacteria. And that bifidobacteria comes from mom's fecal matter, right? And so, and then also in the fecal matter there are um, there are what we call facultative anaerobes, right? So when the baby is born, the baby's gut, the entire digestive system from the stomach all the way down to to the uh, to the bottom is mixed with oxygen and no oxygen, so it's. It's a mix of anaerobic and, and aerobic, right? But the way that a healthy human gut or a developed gut is, is once we go past the small intestine, it's predominantly all anaerobic, meaning there's no oxygen. So one of the first important things that occurs is microbes start going into the baby. And this could be things like E. coli and streptococcus, uh, which may seem like a bad thing, but one of the first things they do, and lactobacilli, which you get from mom's vaginal canal, what they do is they go in and they start eating up and using up all the oxygen in the gut. Once they've cleared the gut of oxygen, then the bifidobacteria that the baby got exposed to can start taking over. So there's this nice little shift that occurs uh, in the first couple weeks of the baby's life, assuming the baby's been born through the vaginal canal. The baby gets exposure to a whole huge amount of lactobacilli in the vag- vaginal canal, other bacteria through the fecal matter, including bifidobacteria. Those initial bacteria, including the lactobacilli, quench all the oxygen in the baby's in the baby's gut. That quenching of oxygen sets up the anaerobic environment where the baby can start building their bifidobacteria content. So that's happening in the first six months of life now. At the end of that first six months, when you start introducing solid foods into the baby's diet, that's when you start to see a very dramatic shift in the baby's gut. It no longer becomes bifidobacteria dominant. You start to see a higher diversity of different types of microbes developing in the baby's gut from six months onwards uh, until about two and a half years of life. Right around three years of life, the baby has its full adult microbiome. This is now the baby's signature microbiome that it's going to be living with for basically the rest of its life. And if at that point we have screwed up the microbiome by giving the baby multiple rounds of antibiotics, uh, by feeding the baby crappy food, you know, the, all of the processed baby food stuff, by giving the baby too much formula, we've at that point set up a dysfunctional microbiome that the baby then has to deal with for the rest of their lives. Couple of caveats that are important to note. Number one, if the baby is C-section, born. And in some cases, you have to be C-section born. You can't avoid it because of the safety of the baby or safety of the mom. If the baby is C-section born, studies out of NYU show that you could take a swab of mom's vaginal uh, secretions right after birth and swab the baby's mouth and nose and and other orifices. And that seems to negate the negative effect of being C-section born. So that's important to note. If your doctor is willing to do that, that's a really important uh, thing that can be done because then that really helps the baby overcome the, the the dysfunction of not passing through the vaginal canal. The other important part is breastfeeding. Breast milk is perfect infant food. One of the largest, nutritious component of breast milk are oligosaccharides. There are over 200 different types of uh prebiotic oligosaccharides in breast milk that the baby can't even digest for energy. It's there strictly to feed the microbes in the baby's gut and start that seeding process of the microbes. That's really important. And mother's milk also can contain up to 600 different types of bacteria. So mother's milk also becomes a really important source to bacteria. So if the baby was uh, a C-section birth, it becomes even more important for that baby to breastfeed because that baby needs to get more and more exposure to good bacteria from mom's breast milk. Now, you mentioned this uh, earlier, but that close interaction with mom and dad and other family members is really important the skin to skin connection is really important the kissing the hugging you know one of the things about babies being so cute you want to eat them up that whole interaction where you put your mouth and face and all that so close to the babies that's actually really important interaction because that's exposing the baby to all of these healthy microbes within its family and within its community. And that'll have a long-term impact overall. Uh, One last note is households that use chlorine-based cleaners to sanitize their home tend to have babies and kids that have poorer outcomes in health, especially when it comes to immune health, when it comes to things like colds and flus and viral infections, and then things like asthma, allergies, and immune dysfunctions as well. So we do not want the baby to be in a sterile environment. We want the baby to get exposure to mom, dad, relatives, dogs, and so on uh, so that the baby has adequate bacterial exposure.
0: I'm amazed with your information and um, I'm I'm sure our listeners are just eating this up and devouring it. You mentioned then, and it wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to go there anyway because it feels like It just makes sense that we discuss this. You talked about vaginal. You talked about um, poo. You talk about saliva. So I want to talk about, you know, as adults, uh, if we're having sex, reproducing, or just sex for pleasure, vaginal, anal, oral, kissing, how does this affect our microbiome when we're
1: mixing that with another human being? Ah, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. For the most part, it's all good for the most part, it's all beneficial because any any kind of uh, intimacy, any kind of uh, exposure to other people's microbes in general is a good thing. uh, Assuming the people you're getting exposed to are pretty healthy individuals, right? So if they are healthy individuals, it's actually a beneficial thing. There are actually microbes that live in us that actually uh, create neurotransmitters to make us more altruistic and make us Connect better with other humans because they want us in close physical proximity because it helps them spread to to other hosts, right? So so that in general is a good thing. Now, uh, what's interesting about anal though is that there's studies on gay uh, male individuals that show that anal sex among gay males. So we don't know if this is true with heterosexual couples. Actually, significantly increases intestinal permeability. You know, and and. They didn't we haven't gone as far as refining if that's the action of, of um of anal sex itself, or is it the lubricants that are used or you know, what other factors are surrounding that? But that's the only thing I've seen so far in microbiome research that has a certain negative um aspect to it. Outside of that, intimacy in general, close physical contact and exchanging of microbes is actually a really beneficial thing. And that includes, you know, with with, with having a dog in the house. You know, there are studies that show that households that have dogs actually have uh, kids that have much better health outcomes uh, because dogs are going out, bringing all kinds of wonderful bacteria into the house and uh, and inoculating uh, the system. Now, here's a very important thing when it comes to intimacy and adult intimacy, especially. The lubricant you use, if you happen to use lubricant, is the most critical part of all of this, because the vaginal microbiome is a very sensitive place. And that's, that's one of two regions in the body where you don't want a lot of diversity. The vaginal microbiome is one where uh, a lot, most healthy women are actually dominated by one species, right? That's really mind blowing when you think about how diverse the microbiome is in the rest of the body, in the gut, in the blood and in, in your eyes, um, but in the vaginal microbiome, there are typically one of four species that predominate most healthy women. When you see a lot of diversity in the vaginal microbiome, it's actually associated with being unhealthy. It can be associated with uh, chronic vaginosis, chronic UTIs, chronic yeast infections, and even infertility. So here's the problem. I've had this suspicion, you know, as, as far as six years ago, that lubricants, because of being a microbiologist and looking at how they are constructed, lubricants probably hurt the vaginal microbiome. And I've come to to work with a couple of different researchers in this in this field, and have come to understand that that's actually true. The vast majority of personal lubricants that we would use for sex or a woman would use even just for playing uh, by herself, actually decimate the uh, the vaginal microbiome. In some cases, a single exposure to the lubricant will will create dysfunction on the vaginal microbiome that the vagina will never recover from. And here's the scary thing. Some of the most damaging lubricants are the ones that are used in OBGYN offices. What they're using for exams and for uh, intravaginal ultrasounds and all those, those lubricants are especially damaging to the vaginal microbiome. So Aside from um, gay male anal sex, where there are a couple of studies showing that leads to leaky gut and increased inflammation systemically and all that, outside of that, the the other form, uh, the other component of sex that actually is damaging is the use of most lubricants. We haven't found a single lubricant on the market that that isn't uh, designed to be damaging to the vaginal microbiome. So when we're talking about just uh, intimate kissing, the saliva transference and oral sex, all good? All good, yeah. Assuming they don't have a disease, we're not transferring herpes and things like that. Uh, all of the beneficial bacteria, microbes and all that are all good and in fact can be healthy in many ways. Uh, in fact, here's another thing. Just that intimacy increases oxytocin right? then, And the increase of oxytocin actually brings down stress uh, hormones. And when you bring down stress hormones, you, you reduce the infectivity of latent infection. So it has all kinds of benefits besides feeling good. It actually has a benefit to your microbiome because of the exposure and it has a benefit uh, to your immune system and the microbiome through the reduction of stress hormones.
0: So if somebody has thrush, for instance, or as you said, a yeast infection in the vagina, how do you rebalance that in the most, I guess, efficient way?
1: Yeah. So when you have a yeast infection, you've got bacteria standing by waiting to take over the real estate when the yeast is brought under control, right? So whether you work with your doctor and and your doctor decides that, okay, you need a prescription antifungal for this condition, which is totally fine in in most cases. If you've got a severe uh, fungal infection, you may need to go the prescription route to bring it under control. Or naturally, there's a number of things that actually act as really good and pretty safe antifungals. One of my favorite is uh, B. propolis you know, propolis that comes from honeybees from from the hives actually is a very good antifungal. Uh, so being able to use it orally or even, maybe even intravaginally uh, can be beneficial. Um, so some of those uh, compounds, you know, uh, actually coconut uh, can be antifungal as well. Uh, coconut oil in particular, so swishing around with that. Or, or maybe even using it intravaginally can be, those things can help bring back the bacteria and bring down the yeast the growth. Fantastic. Before we get into the food, while we're talking about faeces, yeah. <laughs> faecal
0: microbial transplants. Yes. How does it work? And I don't want to spend too long on this, but how did we come to realize that this is a procedure that can benefit? Are there supplements out there that people are going to take one day that have other people's faeces in it? Yeah. What I've heard is sometimes people's gut microbiome is so damaged or non-active, might be a better word, that sometimes the only way to repopulate that area is through
1: an FMT. And can you explain what it means? Yeah, so fecal uh, microbial transplant is basically the idea of taking someone else's microbiome, and that's typically done through fecal sampling, uh, where they take uh, fecal samples and then they try to spin down and concentrate the bacteria. Um, out of the other matter, which is not bacteria in the feces, and then they literally inject that into someone else's colon, um, with the idea that somebody's microbiome is so damaged that you that you can't bring it back, or 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 it's infected at such a high degree that the only way to bring it back under control is to introduce trillions of of commensal bacteria from somebody else to kind of crowd out the infectious bacteria or make the change that is needed um, in, that, in that sick individual's gut. Now, I- in the U.S. and in most of the world, it's really only used uh, frequently for C. diff infections right? So C. diff is clostridium difficile infection, which typically uh, takes hold in elderly people or people who are immunocompromised to some degree, or as a side effect of taking a couple of courses, of antibiotics. So antibiotics uh, can make you more susceptible to C. diff infection. Now in the U.S., the FDA will not allow you to do a fecal transplant unless you've done um, two, three, maybe four rounds of antibiotics. Uh, prior to going to the, to the fecal transplant. But when you do go to the fecal transplant, it is 98% effective in bringing down the C. diff infection. Now, it also works to some degree in autism because one of the characteristic infectious overgrown bacteria in autism is Clostridia. Clostridia boltae and Clostridia tetani, in particular, those two microbes, those Clostridia uh, genus microbes, are seem to be very prevalent in kids who are on the spectrum. So just like C. diff, which is also a clostridia, that can be controlled through a fecal transplant, the autism-associated clostridia uh, may be able to be controlled through a fecal transplant as well. But I will say this with fecal transplants. You know, even though I'm trained and has worked as a microbiologist, I'm a closeted evolutionary biologist, right? So I, I love Um, evolution and evolutionary biology, I love to see how species develop, what are the factors that created the adaptations that we still see today. And I can tell you, I've never seen a cave painting with one caveman putting another caveman's poop up someone's butt, right? So it's it's just not a practice that we've done as a species throughout the course of evolution. So with that comes dangers to it right? So there are numerous published negative effects of doing a fecal transplant. In fact, I was just talking to an individual today who who um, developed really severe IBSD, so that's IBS with diarrhea, when she had a fecal transplant for C. diff. She never had this problem of, of irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, prior to the fecal transplant. She got a C. diff infection. They they tried to treat it a couple of times with an antibiotic. It didn't go away. So they went to the fecal transplant. It did take care of the, of the C. diff infection, but now they transferred over a composition of bacteria that has given her severe IBS. Um, so she's suffering from that. There's cases where after the fecal transplant, a a person who's been lean all of their life and never struggled with weight, all of a sudden starts putting on weight quite rapidly in the first 30 to 60 days post transplant and has a really hard time losing it. And as it turned out, the donor is, is overweight. So you've transplanted that metabolic dysfunction onto this individual. Now, the thing with the microbiome is we still don't even know what we don't know, right? There's so much To learn about this complex ecology, about that three and a half million genes that are carried in the microbiome, the thousands of species of bacteria and all of their metabolic capabilities. So when we are selecting donors... And we're trying to figure out the healthiest people uh, who want to act as donors. And remember, everybody has a different microbiome at the species level. So the ability to find the right donor and transplant that into a recipient and that recipient not having other consequences for that transplant is really low. So that's where we, it becomes really tough with fecal transplants. I think it's a last resort. If my wife or child has had their sixth or seventh bout with with bloody diarrhea from C. diff, I might go, okay, you know what, to stop this, I might elect for a fecal transplant, but I certainly wouldn't make that the first, uh, first line of treatment. All right, let's get stuck
0: into food. Yeah. As you're probably aware, I've been promoting a paleo, which I guess is an omnivorous diet of meat, seafood, vegetables, fruit over the last eight years, and it's, it's done me wonders. Yeah. I've interviewed people. I, I tried veganism 30 years ago, for four years, and I felt good, and then I didn't feel so good, and it was a downward spiral for me. On the podcast recently, I've interviewed people that are following a carnivorous diet, ketogenic diet, which... I tend to lean into and out of, you know, cyclical ketogenic. And I guess there's a lot of confusion out there coming from, as you said, a, a closet mm-hmm. <laughs> evolutionary biologist or microbiologist. I would love to understand where do you sit it in relation to what should we be
1: eating as human beings? Yeah, so that that's a really, really important question. And and I lean towards an ancestral diet, right? So there's that label ancestral diet, uh, which which a lot of people also then classify as paleo. Uh, but when it comes to paleo, I believe in a plant-heavy paleo, because I think that's, for the most part, anthropologically, how most humans can uh, eat macronutrients. And no matter what part of the region of the world you're in, except for a few pockets uh, where they where they eat predominantly meat and uh, certain types of meat at that, but a plant-heavy paleo is 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 a good starting point for most people. And humans are absolutely omnivores. You know, uh, we're not carnivores, so the carnivore diet scares me a little bit. Uh, when I was I, I spoke at Paleo Effects this year. Uh, which is the biggest paleo show in in the U.S. I think, and and I met a lot of people that were now on a carnivore diet, and they're eating basically two steaks a day with butter on it. You know that will have devastating consequences on your microbiome. Part of the reason why we were able to move up the evolutionary ladder and move up the food chain is because we adapted an omnivore-like diet, we could eat almost anything. You know, when you have an obligate carnivore, like take a lion, for example, a lion is an obligate carnivore. Now, a lion cannot eat a plant or seeds or berries in order to sustain itself. So if the lion's food source, the wildebeest, for example, is decimated by a drought, uh, then the lion is in deep trouble you know, but as a human in that same condition, we can start digging and eating termites. We can eat roots. So we can eat tubers and berries. You know, we can eat the lion if we wish, you know, so that adaptation of, of, of developing this omnivore type of system has really allowed us to, to survive. So with that in mind, I, I believe we should be omnivores. We should be eating like omnivores. And, and the aspects of the, of the terminology paleo that i like are this number one, one of the first things I saw about paleo when I started looking into it was the, the the adage, eat real food, right? So that's a really important aspect of paleo where really what we should be eating is real food and not processed crap. So replace all the packaged stuff, the processed stuff with actual food. Uh, so that's a really important part of it. Uh, the second part of it is um, is it, basically the ancestral component to it. However, Here's an important refinement on that. When we, when we talk about eating an ancestral diet, it's important to note that key word in there, ancestral. We all have different ancestors, right? We, and we know now um, that different people from different regions of the world have very different microbiomes, and that's all dictated by the foods that they eat. So, our microbiomes are designed to consume certain macronutrients based on where our microbiomes came from, based on where our ancestors came from. So, if we are um, you know from northern Europe and we 're eating an equatorial like diet we 're probably going to damage our microbiome or if we 're from South America and we 're eating food like the Norwegians eat we're probably going to damage our microbiome. So we have to be a little bit more conscious about what types of foods that our ancestors consume, where where our microbiome came from, and try to predominate those types of food within your diet. So I would say um, eating real food, eating an omnivore-like diet, which which is a huge variety of things eating uh, an ancestral diet where where you're conscious of where your ancestors came from and what types of things they would have consumed. So predominating your diet with those things. And then the last thing is eating a diverse diet, right? Diversity in your diet dictates diversity in your microbiome. And we know that diversity in the microbiome is the most important signature of a healthy microbiome. I love it. It's interesting, like over the last 10 years, I've really experimented
0: with this paleo approach. Uh, At the moment, I'm leaning more towards carnivore, but not completely. Going back to the pregnant woman, I feel intuitive that this is my body at the moment wants a plethora of different organ meats and different animal fats and proteins at the moment, whereas now it's actually coming into the warmer months and I'm again leaning back into the Uh plant-based I guess not completely, but but heavier and putting some salads and and these types of things on the plate. And I'm just wondering, you know, as somebody that's living in Australia, I think we're third generation and before that probably from the United Kingdom, how does that work for mm-hmm. for somebody that's living in a country that has all this native flora and fauna around us, but we didn't our ancestors really weren't brought up in this. And even my ancestors, they never touched anything that was native uh, that was in this country. So how much should we listen to our intuition? How much should we eat in accordance to the seasons and should we for instance right now i'm in australia there's there's native trees growing and they're they're producing fruit should i be putting that into my system should i be focusing on kangaroos that are jumping around or should (laughs) i be focusing on, on the cattle that probably my and sheep that my ancestors would have grown up and and been a huge part of their
1: diet yeah, so really, really important stuff. Now, we do know that there is consistency in the microbiome through generations. There are um, subtle and fluctuation changes that can occur based on geographic changes. But as far as like the core part of your microbiome, and it's estimated that if you take your microbiome as 100%, about 70% of it is fairly uh, is a fairly coarse structure that doesn't change a whole lot. And about 30% of it wobbles quite a bit based on where you are. Like if you left Australia today and and flew to uh, Singapore um, and stayed there for a week, that 30% would shift dramatically. But then the moment you came back to Australia, it would shift back to what it looks like within Australia. So there's a core component and there's a microbiome wobble, which is about 30% of it. The thinking is that the core component comes from several generations of where your ancestors uh, came from and what they ate. Now, it doesn't have to be so specific in that it is a particular type of potato that your ancestors might've eaten in, in the United Kingdom. And, and you need that same kind of potato here in Australia. It's just families or categories of foods. You know, so roots and tubers were consumed at le- relatively high levels um, in, in your ancestors' diet. Then roots and tubers, what which the roots and tubers you find there, um, in general, would be beneficial to you. So we we don't have to get so specific into the very, very type of food. Uh, general categories of foods uh, also matter, you know. And and what you brought up about seasonality is really important because they are, our microbiome no, is not only a diurnal system, which means that it has a twenty four hour clock. Which means that it also requires periods of fasting. Um, it also has a seasonality to it, and you can actually measure shifts in the microbiome as seasons approach. And you are amazingly, uh, you know, in tune with your microbiome because as your season is shifting, your microbiome is giving you different cravings. That's actually exactly in line with, with what we tend to see in, in uh, epidemiology of the micro, uh, microbiome ecology is that there are seasonal shifts because our ancestors ate seasonally. And your microbiome will shift from winter to summer to spring. So if you're getting the strong intuitions you know, for this t- season of yours to add in more vegetables and nuts, totally do it. In the wintertime, if it's more fats, if it's more proteins, Absolutely do it. Follow those intuitions are really important. All right, okay. Big question for you then. Sometimes I put platters
0: of food on the table. A couple of days ago, there was a few different salads. My wife made some dips. We had a few different proteins on there. We had some prawns, we had some pate, we had that. And we sat around as a family and, and there was probably 30 different ingredients, including herbs and spices. Now, What's the difference in eating that, as far as diversity goes, to just sitting down and, as you said, eating a steak for one meal of the day? Is there more benefit for our gut, for our digestion to simplify the amount of food that we're putting in, or is it irrelevant?
1: Yeah. So um, the, the variety of different macronutrients you put in will dictate the diversity in your microbiome. So if you've got a platter of food that has some meat, some nuts, some seeds, uh, fruits, some vegetables, some things with high resistant starch. You know, some things that are higher in fat. That's the kind of eating that will that will afford a higher level of diversity in the microbiome and eventually uh, better health outcomes. If you are consistently eating a narrow range of macronutrient sources like you would see in the carnivore diet or like you would see in in a heavy keto diet for long term, that eventually does harm the microbiome and brings down the diversity in the microbiome.
0: Then why do you think the carnivore diet is becoming popular now? Is it because our gut microbiome is, is shot or underperforming and is eating, just say, meat for a period of time, the least inflammatory food, and it gives our gut a chance to heal itself? What's your thoughts on that?
1: You know, so to me, and in my view, when we look at both going heavy keto and carnivore, the benefit from those, to me, is the elimination, essentially, of sugar. Because you're replacing fat and animal protein with sugar. Uh, You're you're replacing sugar with fat and animal protein. Um, When you go full keto, you're basically getting no sugar into your system. Uh, When you go carnivore and you're eating basically uh, animal protein and fat, you're getting almost no sugar into your system. So I think a lot of the benefits will come just from that alone. Now, Animal protein does also have an increased amount of certain amino acids, like cysteine, for example. So, uh, certain amino acids will drive the growth of certain bacteria more than others. So, you'll start to get a taxonomic shift within the microbiome that in some people may have been needed because they were eating a very rich diet rich in simple carbohydrates, right? So, just that taxonomic shift. Uh, brings about more balance within the microbiome from a uh, heavy carb, heavy processed food or heavy sugar type of diet. So th- just that rebalancing of the microbiome, the problem with it, it'll, if you go too long, if you go keto for too long, if you go carnivore for too long, it will then start having diminishing effects because it'll start shrinking the diversity in your microbiome in the other end.
0: Mm, interesting. It's probably the same with uh, possibly a full plant-based diet or say veganism. Mm-hmm. Probably exactly. exactly the same thing. I do have a question for you because there seems to be so many people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, yeah. sort of colitis, Crohn's disease, you name it, these disorders of the gut. Now, many people go to their gastroenterologist and they don't link food with the problem that's happening in their gut, right. which for me yeah. seems, seems a little strange. I mean, there's great people out there like Dr. Alessio Fasano, who has come over to our house and we've cooked him dinner and I've asked him these questions. He's a rarity, I think, in that field. Yep. My question to you is, I've just been spending the last year doing a documentary about cannabis. Hmm. Now, people are juicing cannabis and with these gastrointestinal disorders, and they're finding benefit from juicing cannabis or including cannabis in their diet. (laughs) Two questions. Why does cannabis seem to be helping these people? And number two, are these gut-related problems wholly and
1: solely due to the food that we're putting into that is causing inflammation with leaky gut? Yeah. So, with with the cannabis part of it, the main active ingredients in cannabis are cannabinoids, right? So, um, whether it's the CBD component or the THC component, there's loads of these compounds called cannabinoids in in cannabis. We have a very elaborate endocannabinoid system in our body, and and the the most elaborate component of it is in our digestive tract. So uh, the endocannabinoid system basically means that we have all of these receptors in our digestive tract for cannabinoids. And these receptors, when they bind the cannabinoids, will actually reduce inflammation. So the main reason why these these cannabinoids uh, in cannabis are helping with inflammatory conditions in the bowel, which is Crohn's, colitis, SIBO, colorectal cancer, even Is because they are bringing down inflammation quite significantly in the lining of the gut. Now, here's what's one really interesting thing. There's a, you know, acromancia, and I think I mentioned that earlier. It's one of those keystone strains uh, within the microbiome where it plays a very significant role in in protecting the host against loads of uh, chronic illnesses, which include metabolic dysfunctions and inflammatory dysfunctions. One of the ways that acromancia helps the host is by increasing the expression of endocannabinoid receptors in the digestive tract. So when you have high levels of acromantia, and then you also on top of that can uh, consume canna- cannabis uh, with all the cannabinoids, you're going to get a significant reduction in inflammation. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful system. So there's a microbiome component to expressing these endocannabinoid receptors. And then the cannabinoids themselves come in from the juicing or uh, eating the, uh, the edibles or even smoking. And then they come in and they bind the endocannabinoid receptors and bring down inflammation. So that's the main way that they help a big part of it is driven by food. For example, um, just gluten exposure alone, right? So uh, studies show that gluten creates transient permeability in everybody that eats it. Um, And you don't have to be celiac to get transient permeability in your intestines by eating gluten. So gluten can be Pretty toxicogenic to almost anyone that eats it. Some people, it's much worse, where it can lead to celiac disease. Um, but most of us, when we eat a component, a compound like gluten, it can create uh, an inflammatory leaky gut in the lining of the of the digestive system. Um, but most of these conditions start with dysbiosis, and that word dysbiosis is, is thrown along... A, thrown around a lot and not very well defined by most people but but the true definition of dysbiosis is looking at very common uniform dysfunctions in the microbiome that then leads to disease so the first aspect of that is having low diversity in the microbiome the second aspect of that is having low levels of these keystone protective strains now why i'm saying that why is that important well because Having high diversity and having high levels of the keystone strains will maintain the intestinal lining structural components so that you don't end up with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or SIBO. Those microbes help maintain the mucosal layer and help maintain the intestinal epithelium, which is the intestinal lining through maintenance of those structures, you can be uh, completely resilient to inflammatory bowel conditions. Now, if you have dysbiosis and those structures get broken down, the mucus layer starts getting broken down and eaten away. The gut lining starts becoming leaky and damaged. Then bad food components like gluten and dairy and other things that may cross-reactive with gluten and dairy like corn and so on. Of course, then toxins that come in with the food, the mole toxins and all that, uh, the glyphosate, Roundup, all the stuff that enters the system then become uh, uh, more toxigenic to the lining of the gut to, to perpetuate damage, which eventually looks like ulcerative colitis uh, or, or Crohn's um, or even colorectal cancer or some form of IBD. So the, the, the damage, the lack of resilience to dietary stimuli starts with the dysbiosis and that dysbiosis could have been a single course of antibiotics you took when you were six years old for a ear infection or a single course of antibiotics you took when you were 12 for strep throat or years of poor eating habits and drinking, um, you know, dirty water with chlorine and fluoride in it, getting exposed to Roundup, uh, anything that destroys the gut ecology. Um, So that's the important thing to note is that foods will trigger all of these conditions. Foods will perpetuate all of these conditions, but the initial root cause damage starts with the dysfunctional microbiome. Thank you so much for that. i got a couple more questions. I know this is probably my
0: longest podcast, yeah. but while I've got you, if you've got 10 more <laughs> minutes, I would love to keep to you. Absolutely. That. So let's talk about sunlight for a minute. We seem yeah. to live in a culture that fears getting outdoors, into the sun, breathing fresh air. And one of my favorite things to do is go for a surfing or at least a swim in the ocean. And part of that routine, whenever I'm in the ocean, I gargle the salt water. And sometimes I even drink a little bit of it. I mean might call it a shot, for instance, while I'm out at the surf. Talk to us about the microbiome of, of the planet, but also how the sun affects our microbiome and should we be going out there and
1: how long should we be exposing ourselves to it or doesn't it matter? Yeah. So, you know, in fact, there's not a whole lot of data on how the sun affects the microbiome outside of saying that, of course, the sun increases the production of vitamin D. And when we have increased production of vitamin D, we have increased binding of vitamin D receptors, which actually cover the digestive tract. When you have increased binding of vitamin D receptors, you get increased activation of macrophages, which is a very important part of the the, um, innate immune system. And when you have increased binding of macrophages, you've got an increased capability of your immune system to control overgrown and pathogenic bacteria within your so, a big part of the the um, importance of sun exposure is upregulating your immune system's capability to regulate the the, the microbiome uh, population. So that's a, that's a major component of it. Beyond that, I haven't seen a whole lot of other studies that directly link sun exposure to changes in the microbiome. But the vitamin D component of it is can be quite powerful. Now, the other part of it is also that on earth itself sun is the biggest source of uh, obviously life giving fuel and so we've got an affinity naturally to be in the outdoors to be in the sun because that's how we evolve and as we uh, when we do that i know for most people certainly i live in chicago where we have horrific winters right and <laughs> and we've got very little daylight for five, six months out of the year uh, and it's extremely cold and bitter and people go through severe depressions in this at this time of year what is the connection there well it is that lack of sunlight because sun exposure can also increase endorphins can also increase dopamine all of those things bring down stress hormones and when you bring down stress hormones you reduce the infectivity and the virulence of latent viruses and bacteria you know similar to what we talked about earlier on so the sun has all of those kind of benefits that help balance and maintain homeostasis within our system. Why, why we are so fortunate as a species, despite being super rudimentary with our own genetic elements, right? We, we are less sophisticated than a rice plant. We are less sophisticated than an earthworm, is when we look at our own DNA and our own cells. And yet we are at the top of the evolutionary ladder and at the top of the food chain. The reason for that is the human as a species, you know, accidentally likely, as is many things in evolution, incorporated so many microbes from the environment into our system. And, and that actually was a, a big a jump in the, in the development of the human species when we came down from the trees, right? So our ancestors live, live predominantly in the trees, right? And when humans became bipedal and came down from the trees and we started uh, roaming about in larger geographic regions, we got closer to the dirt. We started eating more things that were found in the dirt. All of that allowed us to incorporate more and more microbes into our system to create this holobiome. If you remember that term I used earlier on in our, in our conversation, holobiome mm-hmm. is a super organism. We are a walking, talking rainforest. And so much of that rainforest that is a human came from the outside world around us. So, the more we put ourselves in concrete jungles, the more we live in sterile environments, the less sophisticated our inner ecologies are gonna be, and the more we're gonna suffer from disease. And there are studies on this, they are studies that compare people that live in rural areas versus people that come that live in urban areas. And they show that when you live in rural area, you have more diverse microbiomes and better health outcomes versus when you live in urban areas where we are in concrete jungles with predominantly sterile environment. So that oneness and connection with nature, um, is as important as the as the intimate connections we talked about earlier with other humans, uh, because that's where we evolve from. That's where our inner ecosystem came from. Um, and we need to put ourselves back in those environments as much as we can.
0: Back into those environments that don't have the glyphosate or the poisons in the ocean or the, or the water.
1: Exactly. You know, the problem is I, I hear people say, oh, we go to the park all the time. Well, unfortunately, the park has been sprayed with, you know, Pesticides and weed killers and all that, all over the place, right? And that's an engineered soil. It's an engineered environment. It's not going to have the same effect unless you're going to a an actual national park area that hasn't been engineered or disturbed, you know. Or in your case, uh, you're you can you're lucky enough to be able to go to the beach um, where it's less disturbed than than engineered environments around our neighborhood. I'm gonna to have to wrap this up because otherwise we'd be here
0: all day. But I'd love to have you back on the podcast at at a future date to, to actually talk about real probiotics, prebiotics, fiber, all of these things. I've got other questions here like x-rays, I've got sleep on there, I've got getting into the soil, I've got so many different things. Fasting we should talk about. Fasting would be fantastic. Because you started off saying that our human genetics is such a small percentage and we're actually bacteria. From what I've heard over the years, it's nearly like our craving sometimes for these bad foods, and I don't mean to say bad, but say highly processed, carbohydrate, multinational developed foods, you know, chips and ice cream and all yeah. this sort of stuff. It's not actually the human in us that's craving it. It's, it's, it's the bacteria or the opportunistic a bacteria or bad bacteria. I w- want to get your definition of bad or good if there is such a thing. Right. That they're actually, and the parasites, I mean, we haven't even gone into parasites, but that they're controlling the whole shooting match. Like they're, they're pulling our strings and we're
1: just the puppet. Yeah. You know, they're controlling a large part of it. There's good evidence that these microbes create neurotransmitters that they send directly up to our brain through our enteric nervous system. Our enteric nervous system is the uh, neurological network that covers the entire digestive tract from your mouth to your bottom. Um, And the bacteria that live in your gut have direct. Direct access to it, and then that enteric nervous system is is bound to the vagus nerve that goes straight up to your brain. So these microbes can actually produce neurotransmitters that they send directly to your brain to make you feel, think, and do things that they want you to do. And part of that is making dietary choices. You know, if you've got an overgrowth of candida, for example, a fungal overgrowth, those fungus love sugar, so they're going to make you crave sugar. Um, and in fact, they can make you feel. Hypoglycemic. If you haven't eaten enough sugar, even though your blood sugar levels are normal, you know that's how that's how amazingly sophisticated these microbes are, and a lot of those cravings for uh, processed foods do service some microbe within your system. So yeah, that is a that is a whole other ball of wax. It was a when I first got into the microbiome space, there was an article I read and I can't remember where it was published. I've looked for it before, but it really was it it summarized so much for, uh, for me just in the title. And the title of the article was My Bacteria Made Me Eat a Cupcake. You know, and it and that really got into like how the microbes actually have control over our behavior and our food choices. You know, there was also another study that showed that uh, people that that had healthier guts that ate more fermented foods and so on tended to have a better outlook on life than people that that didn't. So just the way you see your world and how you deal with stress has an impact based on the, the health of your gut. So absolutely, those cravings and all that, you could look down at your belly and tell your bacteria to shut up. And stop making you crave the cupcake and the cookie, and then um, you know start feeding those plants and the other healthy food because that'll allow those those other beneficial bacteria to take over, and it'll bring down those neurological signals. That, that will then help reduce the cravings that you have. Uh,
0: Kieran, mate, I look forward to part two, but I'm so grateful for part one of our chat today. And I just want to say I love you, brother. And it was so great connecting thank with you. Thank you so much. And I know you've been traveling all over the world. And thank you so much for making the time for us here at Australia and whoever else is out there <laughs> listening to this. And um, I can't wait to connect again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It'd be, it'd be my pleasure. I'm honored um, that you asked me to be on here. And thank you for doing what you do, because in my view, the future of healthcare is people being empowered with an uh, with a really good understanding of how their body works, right? We can't lean on our health professionals for to make us healthy or keep us healthy. We have to advocate for ourselves and that comes with knowledge. So, you know, having programs like this and all the things that you do out there to educate people is so paramount to the future of the human race and the future of, the, of a healthy human race. So I'm, I'm always honored to be a, a small part of it, to be able to offer some, some knowledge uh, to your audience. So thank you uh, genuinely for having me on and uh, I'd be honored to be on again. Beautiful, brother. Thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.